0: Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians 3, 16 through 17 over you.
1: friends we hope you're enjoying the last few sessions of the hosea study it's hard to believe next week is our final session together if you've participated in the study whether in person or at home or as a volunteer we would love to hear your feedback on how it went please visit date and women in the slash hosea survey that's Dayton women in the slash h-o-s-e-a s-u-r-v-e-y to take our survey Everyone who takes the survey will be entered into a giveaway to win some awesome prizes. You can take the survey anytime from now until Monday, August 6th. Also, while you're over at the website taking the survey, tickets are now on sale for our live podcast event on September 22nd. Click over to the word.com slash podcast live to get your tickets. We've got a limited number of tickets, so make sure you grab yours now before we sell out. We'd love to see you there. That's all for now. Enjoy Session 7 on Hosea 11 and 12. Quick reminder of where we came from last week in 8 to 10. We talked about Israel's self-sufficiency, their fear of losing protection and safety. And I asked you guys to consider what you might be trying to do on your own strength and what things you are tending to hold on to tightly, too. I asked you guys a lot of questions <laughs> last week. Um, tonight, not as many questions, but we're going to talk about the deeper issue behind all of those things from last week, and that is how we think about God. How we think about God determines whether or not we're going to trust Him, and whether or not we trust Him is truly a matter of life and death. So tonight, we're going to focus on what we learned from Hosea 11 and 12 about God's character as a father. And I want to give you a little upfront warning that there are several sections that are a little difficult to translate, and there are differing interpretations on the meaning of the text. So I'm going to spend some extra time in those areas as we go along. If you are confused at all, after lecture, come talk to me. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you about it. So overview of tonight. The first section, the first four verses of 11, the love of a father, 11.5-11, um, through 11, the heart of a father, and then the last verse of 11, and chapter 12, the lessons of a father. And then we'll give you your last homework at the end. You guys just join me in prayer, and we'll get started. Father, what a joy it is and a privilege to be able to call you that. Thank you for being our good father who loves us, our perfect father who does what none of our earthly fathers could do, a father who is tender, kind, loving, caring. God, I just pray that we would see you um, with fresh eyes tonight as the father that you really are, that we would learn more about your heart toward us and listen closely to the lessons that you have for us here in Hosea, and that we would respond and um, continue or learn for the first time to relate to you as a father and what that looks like in our lives. So meet us here tonight. Fill this room with your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. The love of a father. I'm going to read the first four verses of 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught, them to, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. For the majority of our study of Hosea, we have been seeing God and Israel as spouses in a marriage. In chapter 11, we see him claim Israel not as a wife, but as a son. Now, this isn't the first time God has called Israel his son. The first time was way back in Exodus 4, 22 to 23. God, I'm talking to Moses about his upcoming confrontation with Pharaoh. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is serious about Israel. He did whatever it took to get them out of Egypt, and he is a father that would do anything to save his kids. Now, this first section outlines God's character as a father by telling us what he does toward his kids. There are a lot of verbs in this section, so we're going to walk through what God the Father does. The first thing he does is he loves. This is verse one. God is first and foremost a loving father. He loves tenderly and he loves freely, as we'll read next week in chapter 14. He has loved Israel from the very beginning, from when they were young. It was his steadfast love, his Hesed love, that compelled him to rescue them from slavery in the first place. His love came to them before they had done anything to deserve it. He loves them, and he wants them living free. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says exactly that. It says, but it is because the Lord loves you, And is keeping the oath that you swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Everything he does begins with his love. So God loves and he calls. It's verse 1 as well. God is a father who pursues. He calls for his children. We've seen this all over the book of Hosea. He wants them to return home and return to the family. Over the generations, he used the prophets, priests, and kings to call his people back again and again. So this is not just a one-time call, not just here in Hosea. He gives them chance after chance after chance to come back. And what is the response of Israel to the call of this loving father? Verse 2 tells us they move further and further away from him with every call, and they continue to worship Baal. They are bent on turning away from him, like disobedient children that are blind to their father's love and his care and his sacrifice for them. God says in Isaiah 1, 2, Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Tim Chester gives us this picture. He says, Imagine young children running off in a park. Fearing for their safety, their father calls them back, but his shout frightens them. They fear the punishment of the father, and so they run farther away. This is how we're to picture Israel. The more God called, the further Israel ran for him, ran from him. Why? Because they did not trust the grace of God. They did not see themselves as children. Malachi 1:6 uh shows God using this father-son metaphor as well. says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? God is a loving father who deserves honor. God calls us to honor our parents in the fifth commandment. So how much more does our perfect heavenly father deserve honor? The gospel writer Matthew quotes this verse in Matthew 2:15 when he's describing Joseph and Mary's escape to Egypt with Jesus to avoid Herod's plan to destroy him. Of course, Hosea would not have known that this was going to happen to Jesus. He was writing about Israel's past as a nation. Yet God, in his awesome creativity, he fulfills this tiny little verse in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the son And he's called out of Egypt, just like Israel, the son. Jesus embodied everything that Israel was called to be. He was the perfect Israel. He was the perfect child. He did everything that Israel failed to do. Like Israel, the nation, he was threatened. He was delivered from danger. He was called out of Egypt and brought back into God's land to fulfill the task that was marked out for him. In Christ, we take on the character of the perfect son. And in Christ, we are perfect daughters. Do we think of ourselves that way? Do we remember that we are children of God? The third thing we see God do, God the Father, he teaches. This is verse 3. This takes us back to last week when God was teaching Israel the cow to thresh, and in seven fifteen when God talked about training and strengthening Israel's arms. God's a father who teaches and extends discipline when it's necessary for his child's growth. As Peter two or Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter one, verse three says, He grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he teaches us everything that we need to know for this life. God showed the Israelites their identity as beloved children of God when he brought them out of Egypt. The problem for the Israelites, and of course for us, is that they kept forgetting that they were children and lived like orphans instead. God the Father continues to teach us through his word and through his Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate indwelling teacher. We rely on the Spirit to remind us that we are no longer orphans, but we are God's kids full members of the family. The next thing God does is carry. He carries us. Verse 3 says, God took them up by their arms. He carried them. A father must do a bit of carrying and bearing weight when he is teaching his child to walk. Now the Israelites weren't believing this about God, that he was carrying them and protecting them. They forgot he was their father, and they ran to other gods for protection. It's as if they didn't think that he could carry all of their weight and thought they should call in a few extra gods to help them. They have forgotten the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 1, 30 to 31. He said, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. The Lord carries us like a father who carries a son when he is too weary to walk. And his arms never get tired, sisters. He never tires of carrying us. Verse 3 also tells us that God is a healer. He heals Verse 3 ends with God saying, Israel didn't recognize that he was their healer. This is another instance where the people have forgotten his words. In Exodus 15, 26, God literally called himself Israel's healer. Jehovah Rapha means the God who heals. We saw this healing quality back in Hosea 6, 1 with God, the binder of wounds. And in 7, 1 where he promised to heal them we've talked quite a bit this summer about God's intentions to heal us and restore us and bring us back into fellowship with him. And let's not forget Hosea 5, 13, where Ephraim and Judah saw their wounds and he tried to get them healed in Assyria, but they couldn't get healed there. God the Father is a healer. He cares about his kids and he wants to see them healed and whole. He wants us to come to him alone for the healing and the wholeness. God also leads us. This takes us into verse 4. We see a father here leading his child with kindness and tenderness. Our culture does not always associate kindness and tenderness with fatherhood. Perhaps many of you did not experience kindness from your earthly fathers. But isn't this just the type of father that all of us crave? One who is gentle with us, who leads us, shows us the way we should go with patience and with grace. Coaxes us tenderly forward, leads us toward what is best for us. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God the Father coaxes us tenderly toward Jesus. He leads us patiently toward what he knows is best for us. And that is giving our lives to Jesus, to his perfect son. And next, in verse 4, it says he eases or lifts. This part of verse 4 is one of those difficult-to-translate passages I mentioned earlier. Our ESV says God became like someone who eased the yoke on their jaws. But the NIV and others say he's one who lifts a little child to the cheek. So what is happening here? Those seem kind of different. Hosea could very well be returning to the agricultural metaphor from last chapter. This is where the ESV lands. But the Hebrew word for yoke and the word for child have the same consonants. And so the NIV translators chose to land with child. You don't have to agree with me, but I like the NIV here. I think the tender image of the father lifting up his child to the cheek fits with the earlier picture of God taking up the child in his arms. You can't just picture a loving dad like nuzzling his child to his cheek or giving some Eskimo kisses or something like that, right? I feel like that um, fits in with the fatherly metaphor. But God doesn't just lift his kids up for a cuddle. He also comes down to his children. He goes both ways, up and down. He gets down on their level. He came down to Israel in the wilderness, in the pillars of cloud and fire, and he came down to meet Moses at Mount Sinai. He bent down to his children in the most extreme way when Jesus became a human. Emmanuel, right? God with us. He bent down to be with us. God will do whatever it takes to get close to his kids. And the last attribute of God's fatherhood that we find in this passage, of course there are many more, but the last one here is that he feeds. God's a father who cares about and meets our needs. He feeds us physically and he feeds us spiritually too. He fed the Israelites with manna and quail in the wilderness, even after they were whining and complaining. Psalm 78 recounts this. It says, And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in their midst, in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. They ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. God feeds us now with his word. Our generous Father has laid out a feast for us in the scriptures. If only we will come to the table and eat. We are at the table tonight. So God shows himself in this passage as a loving father who's calling out to his kids, teaching them, moving forward toward them, carrying them, feeding them, all these things. This is how he wants the Israelites and us to think about him. He wants us to think about him as a father. The Israelites responded to their father by moving further and further away from him in rebellion. And we'll see in the next section just how heartbreaking that was for him, but... First, let's consider together, how are we responding to the love of our Father God? Do we recognize how he has called us, led us, fed us, taught us, carried us, lifted us up? Do we actually believe that he loves us this tenderly, that he's the one who taught us everything we know and caught us all those times that we fell and gave us everything we ever needed and then some? And let's remember the way he loved Israel. Verse 1 says he loved them from the start, from when they were very young, from before they had any rules to follow. They didn't earn his love. They couldn't earn it. And neither can we. We don't know why he sets his love on us, wretched as we are, but he does. And he will never stop loving us. As the psalmist repeats, his love endures forever. He will always be for us. He has always been supporting us, even when we can't see it. So how are we responding to this truth? John Owen says this in his book, Communion with God. He says, if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of his nature... It cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. This, if anything, will arouse our desire to make our eternal home with God. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. So how do we respond to the Father's love? We delight in him. We praise him. We thank him. We set our thoughts on him. Whether we're feeling it or not, he's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our recognition and our time and our delight. As Revelation 5.13 says, all creatures one day are going to call out together, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But we don't have to wait until Jesus returns to give him glory. Let's start today. So you see what God does as a father. And this next section is going to show us a little bit more about his heart the motivation behind what he does. We're exposed to God's heart here in very human terms. And these kinds of passages can be a little scary at times to read and interpret. It is strange to see God looking so much like us when he is so different from us. We don't want to read too much into the passage and apply too much of our humanness to God. So sometimes we don't apply enough humanness There are many ways that God is not like us, but there are also ways that he is. We are made in his image, after all, so we must have some things in common. I've split this up into three sections. God's broken heart, his compassionate heart, and his confident heart. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 for us. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Right off the bat here, verse 5 is confusing. Are they going to Egypt or not? Are they going to Assyria? What is happening? The ESV says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, keeping it negative, negative. and the NIV says, will they not return to Egypt, flipping it to the positive. We know from the rest of Hosea and from history that Israel as a nation does not literally return to Egypt, but they do metaphorically, because they're returning to slavery. So they will indeed go to Assyria, and it will be like Egypt for them there. And why? The old Hosea refrain, because they have refused to return to God and they are bent on turning away from him. Israel will return to Egypt because they refuse to return to the Lord. In fact, they are set on turning away from him. And this turning is what breaks God's heart. This is the foundation for what's coming in verses 8 and 9, God's compassionate turn toward his people. But first, God repeats his judgment again in verses 6 through 7. War is coming. Cities are going to be destroyed. And then verse 7, another sticky translation point. The ESV says, And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. The Hebrew does not use a proper name for God. For the God of Israel here, it says more generically that they call upwards. It doesn't specify to who. So this could be an upward call to Baal just as much as it could be an upward call to the Lord. We don't know for sure. The context leads us to believe that it's either a half-hearted call to the Lord or a call to some other God since they have obviously turned away from the Lord. And he says he will not raise them up at all. So God is laying some groundwork here reminding us what his people have done to break his heart. They have not returned to him, their father, the God that's always loved them deeply and rescued them. God is broken over this. Then into verses 8 and 9, this is where we really see the merciful heart of God coming through. So hear the love of a father in his words. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. So to understand exactly what God is saying here, we need some context. Adma and Zeboim were among the cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, starting in chapter 13, and there are bits extending all the way through to chapter 19. But basically, these two cities are used throughout the Old Testament to um, be examples for God's judgment, most specifically judgment by fire. And the same is true here. God's just explained why his people deserve complete judgment but his heart cannot take the idea of destroying them. So when God thinks about treating Israel like he treated Adma and Zeboim, total destruction of the cities, his heart is changed. It's moved toward compassion and not anger. He doesn't want to destroy his people. The phrase that's used when talking about what God did to those cities is the word overthrow. The Hebrew word is hafak. It means to overturn, recoil, change, or turn over. There's a turning happening. I have a few examples on the slides that you can look up later Genesis, Deuteronomy, and Amos of some uses of that word, hafak. And God uses that exact word in verse 8. He says, His heart is hafak within him. His heart is overthrown. So instead of overthrowing Israel, like he overthrew the cities, his heart is what is being overthrown. God is so clever with his words, isn't he? Unlike the Israelites who cannot seem to make a turn toward God, God is deciding to still make a turn toward them. This is what a real loving relationship looks like, right? This is the way of Jesus. When we're hurt or ignored or left alone, we get to make the choice to keep pursuing, to keep loving, to keep moving forward toward the other person, even when they've greatly disappointed us or hurt us or broken our heart. This is one practical, although difficult, way that we can image Jesus in our lives. And this idea reminded me of a prayer that I pray often when I'm feeling overwhelmed in marriage or parenting or relationships of any kind, when I'm tired of the difficult work of relationships, uh, when I want to escape and disengage from people, I ask God to help me move toward them in love instead of running away. I ask him to help me do the opposite of what I want to do. This is how God loves, and I need his spirit Desperately to move forward toward people in love. God confirms for us in verse 9 that he's not going to destroy his people or act in anger. He says he's God and not a man, the holy one in your midst. I don't know about you, but this was surprising to me. I thought, like, what does God's holiness have to do with this? Because typically when we think of God's holiness, we're thinking about his perfection and his sinlessness and the fact that we, in our great sin, cannot be near him. But verse 9 says the Holy One is in their midst and he will not come in wrath. So how, what, how does that work? Well, it's just like he says, it's because he is God and not a man. As God, he is distinct. He is different than us. He deals with things differently than we would. He deals with his anger differently than we would. We choose resentment or revenge when we are angry, but God chooses grace. Like, what in the actual world, you guys? He is so unbelievably compassionate. So, then is God actually going to judge or is he going to save or both? How do we reconcile God's desire to judge here and his desire to save? As humans, like, we can't really hold those things together. And this is what Chester has to say about it. He says, God's determination to judge and his determination to save sit uncomfortably beside each other in Hosea. Almost as if God cannot make up his mind. But they are resolved at the cross At the cross, God's determination to judge and his determination to save are both realized. His judgment does not compromise his mercy, and his mercy does not compromise his judgment. So yes, these two ideas are difficult for us to reconcile, but who are we to question God? His timing, his methods, whether or not he decides to turn in compassion. We know that none of us deserve mercy, and all deserve wrath. So every compassionate turn of God is grace. Every saved soul by the cross of Jesus is 100% grace. None of us deserve to be saved, but he sets his love on us and chooses us. It is a great mystery, a profound mystery. And the only way I know to respond is praise. Romans 9 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of that same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power... Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So it's hard for us to understand exactly the nuts and bolts of how all of this works. But we know for sure that God's heart toward his people is a merciful one. It's a heart that moves in compassion toward his children. It's a heart completely different than a human heart. But deeply loves the flawed human hearts of his children and wants those hearts to be turned toward him. This is the heart of a father. i want to read to you verses 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now I pulled out God's competence in these verses because of all of the sure language he uses. He says they will follow the Lord, he will roar, they will come, he will return them to their homes. So God's showing his sovereignty here that his ultimate plans are good. His great plan is a plan of restoration, and we can be confident that the plan's gonna go forward. So God declares his people will return to him. They hear him roar and they will follow him. They may be anxious about it. They may be trembling, but they will return. This happens in biblical history when the remnant returns from exile in Babylon. We studied much of that last summer in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you were with us. I posted a quote from Tim Chester this week on our Instagram stories about the lion's roar because it was just so powerful to me. He talked about the roar of the lion being like the summons for God's children to come home. And he said that when we proclaim the gospel, the lion is roaring. And when someone tells someone else about Jesus, when we show people the gospel, when we show them a glimpse of the kingdom of God, the lion is roaring. And if God is a lion and we have His spirit in us, then we have the roar in us too. Now, I'm not suggesting that we head out to the street corners with our megaphones and try to literally roar at people. But I think this idea can give us some confidence and some wind in our sails, especially if any of you feel like you haven't seen much fruit in your areas of influence or you feel like you're not making any kingdom impact. The lion is roaring in you. You may, not to get, you may not get to see the people in your life make the turn toward the lion, but that doesn't mean that the roar didn't happen. God is confident, so we can be confident. God's chosen people, every last one, will return to him. He will make it so. The heart of God the Father is a heart that can be deeply moved. It's a compassionate and merciful heart and a confident heart. The heart of God is a heart that can be trusted. We're going to move into our last section, the lessons of a father. The message here is that there are some lessons the people of Israel can learn from their past we can maybe visualize God having a little sit-down chat with his son, reminding him of some of the things that happened when he was young that he doesn't remember anymore. So first, God gives us a reminder of the reasons for the lessons as he has done throughout Hosea. Reminder, this is why we're here. So verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Put a pin in that. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. The section starts describing the Israelites as liars, deceitful, and violent. This is important to remember, not that we don't already know, but it's the backdrop for the story that Hosea is telling about Jacob. This disobedient behavior is why God is having the sit-down chat through Hosea and other prophets of his time as well. Before we move into that, let's first stop and talk about the second half of chapter 11, verse 12. And I'm going to nerd out a little bit on this, you guys, so stick with me. (laughs) Translators differ here in a way that completely changes the meaning of the verse. And so I really wanted to talk to you guys about it. I felt like I couldn't breeze past it. The ESV says, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. The New King James agrees with this, but the NIV and the NASB translate it in the opposite way. They say that Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Those are two opposite, completely different meanings. Yet another translation, the CSB, falls somewhere in between. It says, Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to Holy Ones. So how are we reconciling this, especially with chapter 12, verse 2 in mind, which says that God has an indictment against Judah. So when we take a look at the Hebrew, we see that God's covenant name is not used here. So it could be a generic reference to any deity. So as readers, we're left questioning, is Judah really faithful? Do they walk with God? Do they wander with him? Is he the holy one that they are faithful to, or is it some other god? And we are left to make our own conclusions here. History tells us that eventually Judah is taken into exile as well. They are not without fault. Personally, I tend to prefer the CSB because it captures a bit of both sides. Judah is still faithful to God at this point, but beginning to wander into the practices of Israel. But regardless of all of that, where you come down on verse 12, and the kingdom of Judah, God has been very clear about the kingdom of Israel. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we find Israel feeding and chasing the wind, acting corruptly, making covenant with Assyria, and taking a tribute of oil to Egypt. In scripture, the wind can bring protection and life or destruction and death. The wind cannot be controlled by man It only does the Lord's bidding. We don't have time to talk all about the wind tonight, but if you want to do some further study on the wind, there's a couple verses about wind um, in the protective, life giving sense, wind in the destructive sense, and then the east wind specifically, which is what um, we see here. But what we need to know is that wind is elusive, it comes and it goes. Israel is depending on relationships with these other nations that are elusive and temporary, like the wind. As I said, this is the backdrop of God's upcoming lessons for Israel. He's reminding the reader, the hearer, what Israel is like. Israel is a liar, a deceiver, an opportunist, pursuing worthless alliances and engaging in violence. 12.2 says God is bringing another court case against the people. Back in chapter 4, his case was against the inhabitants of the land, and now it's against Judah specifically. He declares they will be punished and repaid for what they've done. And with this backdrop in place, God moves on now to his lesson about Jacob. So all the Genesis things happening here, I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 6. In the womb, he, referring to Jacob, took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. God says in verse 2 that Jacob is the one he's going to punish. And I said, wait a minute, what does Jacob have to do with anything? Let's do a quick family tree. Abraham was the first father of God's people. He had a son Isaac, and Isaac had two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother, so he would typically get what is called the birthright. The oldest son of every family would typically receive the greatest blessing financially and spiritually. But as verse 3 reminds us, Jacob grabbed a hold of Esau's heel in the womb. We read the story in Genesis 25. The name Jacob means he takes by the heel, or he cheats. And this character trait followed Jacob throughout his life. He became known as a deceiver, a trickster, an opportunist. Already we can see some parallels between Jacob the man and Israel the nation. Jacob grew up, and with the help of his mother, devised a scheme to steal the birthright from Esau. And in Genesis 27, 36, Esau cries out, Isn't his name rightly Jacob? He Jacobed me. That's what the Hebrew says. But this deceiver's name was eventually changed from Jacob to Israel. That new name can be translated, wrestled with God, or contends with God, or God prevails. We read in Genesis 32, 28 that he gets this new name because he struggled with God and with men and prevailed. There's a change that happens in Israel, the man. Will there be a change that happens in Israel, the nation? Verse 4 says, Jacob met God and heard him speak at Bethel. This is referring to the dream Jacob has in Genesis 28. And then his return to Bethel in Genesis 35. What's important for us to learn here is that God's responsible for the change in Jacob. God changed him from deceiver to receiver of visions. God is the change agent in Jacob's life, and he'll be the change agent for the nation of Israel. And who is this God? The Lord Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of armies. This is how God wants them to remember him, a God full of power and promises. And we can hold that together with his fatherhood. In verse 6, Hosea calls them again to return, but with the story of Jacob in mind, with the help of their God, the God of armies. Joel 2 says it this way, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Return, hold fast, wait continually. This is the call of Hosea to the Israelites and to Judah and to us. This is also reminiscent of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We are not left wondering what God wants us to do. He wants us to come back. He wants us to turn toward him. He wants us to grab hold of love and justice. He wants us to trust him and wait on him always always believing in him, expecting him to show up, hoping in him. This is also the call of Jesus, repent and believe. God uses the story of Jacob to show them that while their ancestors shared many of the same disappointing character traits, lying, cheating, trickery, God brought about change in his life, and he can do the same for Israel. If only they would return, hold on to him, and trust him. The next verses move us on from the days of Jacob into the marketplace. Verse seven, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. But first, Jose is talking about a merchant, which might seem out of left field. But the word used for merchant is literally the same word for Canaanite. The Canaanites were traitors in the land of Israel, so the term was interchangeable. God's comparing Israel to a Canaanite trader who loves to cheat and deceive. The Lord loves justice, and he hates seeing his people lie and cheat. But even worse, they're acting as if they've gotten their wealth in an honest way. Essentially, verse 8 is Israel saying, we're self-made men, we've done this on our own. This takes us back to Revelation 3. We talked about the church of Laodicea before, and they had a similar cry in their hearts. Jesus said, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God's response to their pride, this proud merchant, verse nine: "I'm the Lord. I'm the same God that I was back in Egypt, and I'll put you back in your tents like you lived in back then. The closest thing you have to understanding what it was like right now is the Feast of Booths. If you aren't if you aren't familiar with the Feast of Booths." You can read about it in Leviticus 23. Essentially, God asked the Israelites to come together every year to build booths. Booths are temporary tents. To remind them of the time that their ancestors spent in the wilderness. And give them an opportunity to celebrate God's faithfulness. But the reference to this celebration is ironic here. He's saying he will send them back to the discomfort of the wilderness. They have lost understanding of what the celebration is meant to teach them. The return to the wilderness harkens back to Hosea 2, God bringing Israel into the wilderness and speaking tenderly to her. We know there is healing available for them with God if they will humble themselves and receive it. This is what Derek Kidner says about the passage. He says, it's a double thrust. First, in effect, was it for this that I redeemed you to make you a bunch of Canaanites? And secondly, When you relive the exodus each year, camping out as your fathers did, is it only make-believe? Or is it to relearn the lesson of those days, that man does not live by bread alone? So God wants them to flee the ways of the Canaanites, to remember his provision and protection, and remember that any success that they have is from him. He wants them to humble themselves and warns them that if they don't, he will have to do the humbling. Now, the last lesson is a lesson from Moses. More broadly, it's a lesson about the prophets, but more specifically Moses, even though he is not named. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, where Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So God's declaring himself the giver of prophets and visions and lessons. He says parables. He has something to say to us. Most obviously, he has something to teach us here. Now, this isn't God's first reference to the prophets in Hosea. Uh, Back in chapter 9, verse 7, I didn't spend much time on it in that lecture, but Hosea talks about how the prophets are regarded as fools and madmen, though they are meant to be God's watchmen and messengers. The prophets during this time were hated and mocked. Kidner says the prophets were sent to make men think, to confront them with the signs of their own times and with the living God. And I'd go as far to say the whole message of Hosea is a confrontation for the Israelites with their time and with their God. Now in verse 11, God brings in Gilead and Gilgal, naming actual places that are about to receive judgment. The main thrust of his argument here is that sin leads to ruin. He says that their altars are meaningless, like a pile of stones at the edge of a field. This is part of the message he's trying to get across through the prophets. Sin leads to ruin. In verse 12, he throws back to Jacob, but only as a stepping stone to get us to the lesson of Moses. He's focusing on Jacob's shepherd years, his sheep-tending years, In verse 13, God says that a prophet, that's Moses, brought Israel up from Egypt and tended them as a shepherd tends sheep. God appointed Moses as a tendered shepherd of his people. This is a very fatherly move. He's reminded them that he's sent prophets and leaders to help and guide them, but they have chosen to follow other leaders and gods of their own making. And we end in verse 14 with God declaring that Israel has provoked bitter anger in him by not listening to the prophets. Israel will remain guilty and receive the due penalty for their disrespect and for their lack of loyalty. God's reminding them that he used Moses and the prophets for generation after generation to guide them and to warn them. They would do well to listen to his prophets and not to write them off. If they don't listen, they'll bear the consequences. Now, all across the chapters tonight, we've seen the character of God the Father. His tender care, his long-suffering, his merciful heart toward us, his desire to teach us and to warn us through the prophets. But why does God want us to consider his fatherhood anyways? Why does he want his people to know about his tender heart and listen to his fatherly lessons? I think it is because his kind, tender fatherhood is what will ultimately turn his people back to him. Romans 2 tells us it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When we see his love for us, his care, his tenderness, his kindness, we want to turn toward him. We want to stop doing what we've done that's hurt him. We want to return his kindness with honor and respect and love. God knows this, so he reminded his people over and over that he's a loving dad. And he has a heart that's bent toward mercy, a heart that relents when he thinks about just how much he loves us. God the Father's arms are open wide to receive his wayward children. Hear the description of the father in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This is how God receives us. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Not only that, he clothes us in the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus, and celebrates when we come home to him. God wants us to come home to him, our loving father. He does not want to see us destroyed. And in Jesus at the cross, he made a way for all of us to come. So will we come to him? Will we allow him to embrace us and heal us and carry us and be the dad that he longs to be and that we long for him to be? I'm going to end by reading Isaiah 12 over us, because I think this is just what a repentant response to God looks like. It says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. of Israel. Pray with me. Lord, we give thanks to you for turning your anger away and comforting us instead for becoming our salvation through Jesus, for taking away our fear, for being our strength and our song, We give thanks to you, Father, for all that you have done on our behalf. Thank you for loving us, leading us, teaching us, carrying us, picking us up, coming down to us, feeding us. Help us to see you that way, relate to you that way, pray to you that way. We pray that we could image you. Image your fatherhood, your kindness, your tenderness, your gentleness, your love. We pray that we could image those things in our lives, God. But first and foremost, that we would just respond to it. That we would see your kindness and turn toward you. That we want to stop doing all of the stuff that hurts you and breaks your heart. And that we would only want to do things that please you. And we know there's no way of doing that without your spirit living in us. We know we need you to give us a new heart, a heart that can turn. So we thank you for all of us in this room who have been given a heart that can turn towards you. So we pray that they would. I pray that over this week, God, as we close out this study of Hosea, as this is the last week in your word, together, God, that you would just do a, a mighty, a mighty work of, of recalling all that you've taught us in these past eight weeks, that you would leave us with a beautiful and true picture of who you are, the way you love us as a father, the way you love us as a spouse, your said love, your steadfast love, God. I pray that we would take (laughs) these lessons that you've taught us, that you've bent down to teach us, and that we wouldn't just tuck them away, but we would apply them to our lives. We would teach them to others. We would continue to teach them to ourselves every day. Remind us by your spirit these things that you so long for us to (laughs) remember each day that we are... No longer orphans, but your children. That is our identity, God. Help us to live like we're part of the family. We want to look like you, our dad. We want to enjoy life with you. Let it be so, Lord. We praise your name and thank you. Amen. All right, sisters, last week of homework. You get a little freedom this week. But be careful, because sometimes freedom means that you just won't do anything. So I'm giving you some options, but I would encourage you to choose one of them, at least. Um, So the normal things, read through 13 and 14, keep making notes do your discussion questions. And if you have been doing the response questions handout, um, one of the challenges is to review all of those just to take a look at kind of an overview of what you've learned throughout the summer. Reread or listen to Hosea one more time to remember everything that you've learned. If you're a champion, you can outline the whole book or you can paraphrase it. Um, and now is also a good time to read commentary or listen to commentary. If you haven't done that throughout, you can do that here at the end. If you need any commentary, um, recommendations, let me know. You guys know I love Tim Chester, so that would be my first recommendation. Um, but yeah, I just encourage you guys to reflect this week over what you've learned this summer. If there's anything that you missed a week that you missed or something like that and you want to go back and spend more time I encourage you to do that this week but for sure don't miss session eight guys it's gonna be good we're gonna celebrate everything that God has done we're gonna look forward to what he has ahead for us so I'm excited we'll see you then have a good week
0: Thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's Word, visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in His Word today, sister.